sometimes a new writer burns brightly for a brief time and then fades away into obscurity. Other times, I'm left with the distinct impression that their career will be filled with many more years of brilliance. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author R.F. Kwong. Her Poppy War trilogy, a fiery blend of history and epic fantasy, concludes next month with The Burning God. Rebecca and I discuss her conflicted emotions at saying goodbye to the Poppy War series, revisit her powerful acceptance speech after winning the Astounding Award for Best New Writer, and question the role of fantasy in a world whose problems may demand a more direct response. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Rebecca. I'm absolutely delighted to have this chance to chat. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, I did see on Twitter recently that you just recently finished your master's thesis. So congratulations. Uh, Just how does it feel to have that done with? Thank you. Um, Yeah, I turned in my dissertation at the the start of this month and I'm actually not completely done with the degree yet. I still have to wait for next week for them to tell me if, you know, I passed and was in fact awarded the degree. But I think absent you know, like sudden discoveries of plagiarism, which I'm pretty sure I did not do. Um, I (laughs) I do have that degree. So that's really exciting. Um, And like the biggest change with being finished with coursework is that I now have the entire next year to just write full time. Um, Well, like I'm auditing auditing classes, but I'm not doing anything for grades. So, so that's different and freeing. And that was not originally the plan because the plan was I was supposed to go straight into my PhD studies, but obviously because of COVID, I decided to defer for a year. Um, And I found that that's been really necessary actually to working on the next project. And I know we want to talk about the fourth book later, but it's just, it's so much harder to write. It requires so much research and concentration. So I'm actually very grateful that I now just get kind of uninhibited free time to sit down and focus on the work. Yeah, I, I can imagine that absolutely helps because this will be the first time I think that you've actually had like dedicated full time like as a writer, I think. Yeah, it's it's a little scary. I, I don't love writing full time. I've done it on vacations before. And and once this one seminar course is over, I'll, I'll go back to pretty much writing all day. And it's it's like weird and scary. The days feel very unstructured. I, I like it when I have like hard, short like, you know, smaller deadlines and tasks I can work towards. But just like living in my own head and working on my own novel all day is, is very disorienting and scary. So I'm, I'm glad I won't be doing that for too long. Do you try to set yourself like a rigid structure or anything? Like, okay, for these hours, I'm going to be doing research. These hours, I'm going to be plotting. These hours, I'm going to be actually getting the words down on paper. Yeah, I have like a set amount of hours that I work each day. And I also, like, as you said, have different like tasks and goals for those hours. So um, I, I do have like a solid word count of about a thousand words a day. And then once I've hit that, I also, so like I revise as I draft. So then, then the next task is to revise at least two pages of an earlier chapter. Um, and then if I get all of that done, then I get to do like kind of unstructured research and uh, I call it brainstorming time. Uh, when I just read books around the topic area and, and it gives me ideas for scenes and details that I wouldn't have thought of before. Um, which is really my favorite part of the writing process, just like the discovery and, and serendipity. 
but I don't let myself do that because I'll just get distracted and go down rabbit holes. Um, so I, I save that for the end of the day and I try to start out with just hitting the word count first. Yeah, that seems like a, a productive way of approaching it. Uh, and I know, so you said you're doing a lot of the research reading then. I know before you've said you try to read like 100 books a year. Is that going towards that or are you reading 100 fiction books a year as well? Oh, uh, well, we hit 100 quite a while ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm trying to, this year I'm trying to do 200 books, but I really had to slow down this month just because of course reading. So, so I'm on 142 right now and we'll see if I can read another 60 by the end of the year, but. If I don't get quite there, I'll be okay. I think I got to 170 last year, so we'll see. Wow, that's that's so impressive. I am such a slow reader, so I am just in awe. I, I do feel blessed that I can read fiction really quickly. But I think like also at a certain point, once you're incredibly familiar with the genre, you start speed reading because I know what tropes I'm expecting and I know what character types I'm going to see. Unless, unless it's like a really groundbreaking original work, like... Like something like N.K. Jemisin's novels, for example, like I find myself like not slowing down and savoring every single sentence. Like I'd rather like swallow the entire plot as a unit, you know? Yeah, I don't know how you could speed read uh, anything that Jemisin writes unless you speed read it like 10 times back to back. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess going back a little bit, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Um, no, I can't because... Most of us are missing memories from my childhood, uh, but I do remember um, the novels that uh, like I kept coming back to and rereading over and over again. Um, and I remember when I was in elementary school and middle school, just like sitting by the bookshelf and reading the Pendragon books. I feel like people don't really talk about those anymore, but they were like the Bobby Pen. Oh, it's by DJ McHale or something. Those? Yeah, those were the yes, I love those. something ridiculous like Saint Dane. Um, yeah. <laughs> I remember I loved those. I was crazy about the Animorphs books in elementary school um, and just reread those constantly and daydreamed about them. Um, also, Cinda Williams' Chimes, uh, the Warrior Air trilogy, and obviously like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, um, Rick Riordan's novels, etc. Um, yeah, I, I think I always gravitated more towards fantasy than science fiction, but um, one writer who was hugely influential on me as a reader and a writer later was Orson Scott Card, which, you know, is difficult to think about and talk about because he's obviously very homophobic and you know, that's, that's a difficult legacy to grapple with. But uh, that being said, right, like Ender's Game is basically etched into my bones as a writer. Like I, that was mind blowing to me. Um, you know, the things he did with story and character and dialogue. And I remember as I was drafting the Poppy War, um, I I went back and read like Ender's Game and its sequels just because like obviously that that series is about very smart kids uh who don't have like the emotional maturity for the situations that they're thrust into. Like having this like really quippy uh, rapid dialogue with each other where it's the strength mix of like very complicated um, issues of global uh, international importance uh, mixed with the fact that they're like 12 years old um, and I thought that was so cool and interesting and I tried to evoke that in my own writing um, but yeah it's it's hard like I probably would not read anything Orson Scott Card put out now but I, I do remember that he was really important to me as a kid yeah, there's a quite a few foundational series that I read when I was younger that I feel like I couldn't really in good conscience go back and read knowing what I know now. Yeah, like I 
would not read Harry Potter anymore. But I also nope. think as I've gotten older and smarter, I've, Harry Potter has like gotten successfully, successively like less esteemed in my mind. Like not even as like a piece of childhood nostalgia, but as like a, a work of fiction in terms of like craft and character, etc. I think like there was a couple of weeks ago, somebody tweeted this funny Ursula Le Guin quote um, about J.K. Rowling, which she called like it was like the the ethics of of the series was like basically um, selfish, or or she was just like criticizing J.K. Rowling's like views towards um, morality and like basic human worth. And I was like, oh no, she's that that no, that's right. <laughs> Well, so my understanding is that you don't really have like an extensive formal education in writing necessarily other than say like reading a ton of books on your own, uh, but you did attend the 2016 Odyssey writing workshop. So what was that experience like? Yeah, that was my formal education in writing. Um, I, I could not imagine my career now without Odyssey. I only have good things to say about it. I think Jean Cavellis is one of the smartest people I've ever met, just a brilliant story editor. Um, and Odyssey came at a really good time for me because obviously I hadn't taken any creative writing classes before I wrote The Poppy War. Um, and like like a lot of writers, my education just came from reading a lot and, and reading books on craft by myself um, and just like kind of internalizing things about good stories uh, based on you know, following other people's examples, um, which works for a first book, right? But then the second book comes around and like the first book sold and you suddenly have to write something that people will like just as much that, that surpasses the first book in terms of skill and scope of story. Um, and like, you know, we, we call this second book syndrome and it's extremely common. And there are a lot of reasons why this happens and the first reason obviously is just the pressure of having to replicate something that was good but secondly i think it like it hit me hard because um like all the things that have worked in the poppy war were things that i did not know the names of like it, they were writing techniques that i had kind of unconsciously employed and groped my way around but it wasn't until i went to odyssey that i learned the names of those tools um you know tips and tricks and and learn to employ them deliberately with intentionality and and that did wonders for my craft so when i was writing the dragon republic it no longer felt like i was just like you know trying to throw things and see what stuck and like experiment with um, techniques that I didn't know would be effective. Like I actually had a good understanding of plot structure and character growth and dynamics and, and dialogue and, um, you know, raising the stakes, et cetera. Um, so I, before I went to Odyssey, I had drafted like 120,000 words of the Dragon Republic. And then afterwards, basically none of that was usable. Like we, we replotted the book from the ground up and like everything had to be torn apart but that was utterly necessary because i i really did not know how to write a book right like i i kind of lucked into writing like a first book that has a relatively simple plot structure but the dragon public is is much more difficult on on every level and it would not have happened without odyssey and so I actually uh, got the chance to interview Lyndon Lewis, who was also at the 2016 Odyssey workshop with you on the podcast. Uh, and so I hear there was kind of like a running joke in the class that uh, everyone was writing sexy Ren characters. And any chance is that related to Ren from the Poppy War? <laughs> 
Uh, so not Ring, but um, <laughs> there. I don't know who did it first. It might have been me, but I wrote a story in which there was a sexy officer, Ren, R-E-N, and then oh, somebody okay. else had like a sexy officer, Ren, and then obviously Lyndon <laughs> ended up putting a, a sexy officer, Ren, in in their novel. Um, but yeah, so actually, uh, Lyndon was one of my closest friends at Odyssey, and afterwards, like six or seven of us formed a writer's group called um, the Tomato Society. Uh, and that was because we would get together after workshop and, and write together. Um, and like, because all we wanted to do was like talk and gossip. Uh, we had to use the Pomodoro technique um, in order to stay focused, which is just like, I don't know why it's called a Pomodoro timer, but like, you know, like tomato timers. I don't know what tomato timers are, but apparently you can set them to short amounts of time. But we had this app that was tomato themed that would like run for 25 minutes and we write for 25 minutes and then we'd get to talk and just chill out for for another five minutes and then write for another 25 minutes. And, and we did that for six weeks and it was wonderful. Um, but yeah, so London's a, a close friend and it's been really awesome to see their books take off. Yeah. And that's, I love that name of the tomato writing society or something. The tomato or, society, yeah. Yes. Uh, although like immediately what came to mind was picturing like the, uh, I don't really want to call them critics, but like kind of that motif where you got like the angry, like people in the audience, like throwing tomatoes at the artist <laughs> on stage. No, I just have like really triggering memories of that tomato timer app going off. <laughs> I can only that we had to get back to work. Um, well, back in high school, I see that you competed in debate a good bit, uh, even winning the national tournament of champions, which is amazing. Uh, so how did your background in debate influence your writing? Debate was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, it definitely influenced my writing in a variety of ways. The first is just that the amount of research and, and just like content knowledge that you have to acquire as a high schooler about, um, you know, a ton of fields that high schoolers don't normally study that is required in order to be successful meant that, uh, like, obviously I started writing at a very young age, but I had, I think, more of an education on on things like history, critical race theory, um, like international relations theory, et cetera, uh, because of debate. Like, nowadays at high school debate camps, which I still teach at, and my boyfriend, um, he, he coaches high school debate, like, students are are learning like difficult material that really belongs in college seminars about like writers like Wilderson, et cetera, Fanon. Um, and like, you know, you've got high schoolers reading The Wretched of the Earth, which I, and Blacks and White Masks, which I think is super cool. Um, and, and it's because I had all of that content education as uh, from a really young age that I think I was able to apply concepts in the popular that um, I don't think people were expecting from like a teenage writer. Um, and the other very basic and silly impact that debate had on, on the trilogy is obviously like the, the competitive edge you feel at tournaments, that, that desire to win, the desire to beat other people. Like it was easy to write from those emotions when I was describing Rin's time at synagogue, right? Like her rivalries, her, her time, uh, her, her experience during the tournament, uh, during the trials, uh, which which follows just exactly the structure of a high school debate tournament uh, with preliminary rounds and uh, elimination rounds, um, and which is when you know obviously she she fights Nadja uh, in like a death match. That like obviously like we were not trying to kill each other, but <laughs> there was that really uh, that was that very real sense of like you know hating your opponent, like really wanting to 
beat them verbally into the ground and, and humiliate them and, you know, establish dominance. So, uh, I mean, like writing obviously is always an exercise in, in reflecting our own emotions and experiences into those of our characters. But that gave me a lot of emotional fodder to kind of amplify and exaggerate things that I had felt before into things that Ren and the other characters were feeling. Right. Yeah, I definitely feel like that comes through as well as like you were saying earlier, those influences from like the structure of Ender's Game. Yeah. Well, so now that uh, I mean, it's pretty much off your plate now, the Poppy War trilogy. Uh, how does it feel to be wrapping up something you've been working on for so long? I've had a weird process saying goodbye to the trilogy. Um, at first, I was just really excited to be finished. Um, so I, I remember I turned in the last major edit um, in March. And at the time, I was just so excited to be working on, on book four, the Oxford novel, which I'd been brainstorming all year and, and was so pumped to shift gears to and explore. Um, and... So I, I think I'm going to be doing standalones for a while um, until I get the idea for the next big trilogy. And the reason why is because committing to a trilogy when you're a debut writer is something that I think people should approach more cautiously because it, it really locks you into like, you know, five to 10 years of work um, in the same world, on the same characters, on the same storyline that you conceived at the beginning. Um, and I, which meant that like, uh, 23, 24, right? I was, I was still writing characters that I'd come up with when I was quite young, uh, which was frustrating in a lot of ways because if I'd gotten to do the Poppy War trilogy all over again, right? I, I would have foreshadowed different things about the trifecta. I would have designed characters differently. I would have introduced characters in the first book. Um, but instead, I've been stuck with them all this time. And I was getting really tired of writing from their voices and, and thinking about their story. And ultimately, I... I'm really happy with the way that the trilogy ended. And I think, um, I think that the way that their story concludes in the burning God is, is exactly the right ending for the trilogy. But it was also just, it just felt so liberating to be done and to have the chance to start over on, on a blank canvas, come up with a new world, new rules, new characters, new stakes. And also just because my, like my thinking has evolved, the, the research topics I'm interested in have shifted, um, having the chance to, to work on something completely different feels really good. Um, so that was my mindset at the beginning. Uh, but then I started drafting the Oxford novel and I realized it's, it's very difficult to start over um, because by the time I was writing the third book, right? Like I didn't have to do world building anymore. I knew the world. I knew it very well. I knew all the rules of it. I knew the technology exactly like the descriptions of the technology, the, the currency they were using, the dialects which they were speaking, the clothing, etc. All of that felt natural and like like air that I was used to breathing. And I knew the characters and their voices like they were my own friends. So when I sat down to write scenes, I never had to ask myself like what really what what would Katai say in this situation? Like how would Nudja respond? Like I knew their personality so intricately like it was flowing very easily out of me. And, and suddenly I had to construct a new world um, and do research and, and figure out what it would be like to live there and what the rules are, what the magic system looks like and, and all of the attendant history and politics, culture, society, et cetera, that that means. Um, and, and then obviously like having a cast of new characters. And I, so one thing I really struggled with that I think 
sometimes authors do not do successfully is to start over with a new main character that feels sufficiently different from the old main character that they're not just some weird echo of them. And in my response to not writing somebody too similar to Rin was to write somebody who was really the opposite of Rin in every possible way. Um, so it's like if there were a character that I would compare um, in the popular trilogy to the new book, uh, I would say like the new book is as if like Katai was the main character. Um, but that was hard because like I don't know these people very well. I I don't know their backstories. I still have to come up with them and fully flesh them out. I'm still figuring out their voices. And sometimes when I'm writing, it's I I get tempted because I hear the echoes of my old characters and I get tempted just to write to what I know instead. Um, so it's actually been quite a difficult process of letting go and moving on. Um, but I was doing an author chat with the Schwab uh, where I asked how, how she shifted gears to new projects after spending such a long time in, in older projects. And I'm thinking specifically of when she started something new after finishing the Darker Shades of Magic trilogy. And uh, she gave me a really great piece of advice, which was that when she started something new, she would change uh, something fundamental about the, the structure. Um, so, you know, changing from past tense to present tense or a single POV to multiple POVs or, um, you know, uh, like the voice of the protagonist might be different, etc. Um, and she said, like, the w reason why that works is because then the project feels like something else entirely that you're not tempted to write. Uh, what you have been working on. Um, so that's something I did for the Oxford novel and that's helped a little. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's weird and hard to move on after spending five years of my life on something. And uh, at the same time, it's it's a lot of discovery and it's, it's really exciting to get to try something new. Yeah, I can imagine it's definitely a double-edged sword because on the one hand, like you can make the foundation exactly what you want it to be for your new project, but you actually have to go back and build that foundation from scratch all over again. Yeah, it's tough. Well, back on the Poppy War series, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages you faced when trying to merge the historical and the fantastical? I actually did not struggle very much in this regard. Um, and that's okay. because the... Well, okay, so I'll talk about what I spent the most time figuring out. Um, and that was obviously the, the disconnect between the plot being centered basically entirely around political movements and, and wars of the mid-20th century uh, versus the the setting and the aesthetic being influenced by uh, like 13th, 12th century Song Dynasty um, world building. So obviously, like you've got movements in, in 20th century China, like the nationalists and communists going to war against each other, but you can't just import those ideologies and factions wholesale into a much older world because that history isn't there, right? Like they're, they're on a different place in Marx's timeline of historical progression. Um, so it was an interesting exercise in translating and transposing um, those factions and ideologies towards, you know, like like the structure of power, towards the economy, towards inequality, um, into something that would have made sense in a 13th century world. So you can't have characters running around like spouting <laughs> Marxist-Leninist um, propaganda, but you can have them saying, you know, equivalent uh, slogans about inequality and exploitation and, um, you know, resource redistribution, but it, it has to feel natural, right? It, it can't feel too much like the characters are, are discussing modern uh, political thought um, in a very not modern world. 
Um, so that was something I had to be really careful with, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't too difficult. It was just a fun exercise. And it's probably interesting to try to like, uh, since a lot of it feels like not necessarily one to one mapped from actual history into the poppy war stories, but you can definitely see like distinct parallels for specific events, specific characters. So trying to make it feel like its own distinct story that someone with zero knowledge of history, which is more or less me to a certain extent, uh, can like appreciate that as they're reading it. And then also someone can pick up on all of the nuance as well. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of the reason why some readers don't seem to know what to do with the popular. I think actually like the less you know about Chinese history and culture and politics, the more enjoyable it is. Um, because then it just reads like wholesale as like a secondary world fantasy story. Right. Or if you have like a, like middling knowledge of like what the references are, uh, you know, vaguely um, mapped to then then I guess it's fun as well. But I, I get readers who know a lot about Chinese history and for them, the trilogy is jarring because it's, it's too much real world stuff in an ostensibly fantasy setting. And they, they write these reviews that are like, you know, this is just lifted wholesale from Chinese history, like this mythology, this, these culture, cultural details and names, etc. Like it's just, the author was very lazy with her world building here <laughs> because you can tell it's just China and Japan. And it's like, ah, was I being lazy or was I being deliberate? Um, because this is, I mean, I like this version of historical reinterpretation. I think it's fun to do remixes and, and mashups of history and story. Um, but it doesn't work for everyone. And I've been really interested to see the reaction from people um, who who it doesn't work for specifically because they know too much about what I'm referencing. Right. And then I guess on the flip side, you have people like me who they read the story, realize it's based on real history and then kind of like, okay, well, how can I learn more about that? Like how much of this was actually happening in the real world and sort of re-examine it that way? Yeah, it's been really cool actually um, that it seems like a large part of the reaction to the popular has been a, a greater interest in China's role in World War II in the Second Sino-Japanese War, um, which is why, and I was really excited about this, when we did the paperback edition of The Poppy War, my publisher asked me to write like a little essay at the end um, about the historical references and to give like a reading list. Um, and, and people like are actually reading books from that reading list and like educating themselves because um, they got curious. So, so that's, that's been a cool side effect. Yeah, well, since you are uh, referencing so much actual history, are there actual historical figures that you mapped onto the characters in the Poppy War? Yeah, um, so the the obvious one is Rin is supposed to be Montedol. Um, and this, like, I get such weird reactions to this. Like, some people are like, how could you? Like, this is horrible. Like, how could you, like, valorize and glamorize, like, a, a terrible figure in Chinese history? And it's like... First of all, I am not quite sure that is what I have done. Uh, I, I don't think at any stage Rin is made out to be the hero. Um, but secondly, like I, I'm not trying to write like a Mao biopic, right? Like I'm not trying to do a fictionalized Mao biography. I'm instead just inspired by the question. Uh, like I'm, I'm trying to explain Mao. Um, I wonder a lot how he got to where he was, how he developed such a callous attitude towards human life um, how he made the terrible decisions that he did and like it's tempting to just say he was a terrible person and he didn't care about people and he was a sociopath um and a lot of that's probably true uh but i think it's more interesting to ask if that's not true if he 
was genuine about his beliefs, if he was really trying to do the things that would have been best for China, if he genuinely believed in, in Marxism and in his socialist movement, then then what explains like the Great Leap Famine? What explains the Cultural Revolution? What explains all those statements where he is like, oh, it's fine if the U.S. drops an atomic bomb on us, we have millions of people. And, you know, it might kill millions of people, we have millions more. Like, how do you get to the point where you can just casually utter those statements? Um, so it was it was a psychological puzzle um, that I wanted to explore through Rin. Um, but she's obviously not mapped completely to, to Mao's history. Uh, and she's very much her own person, but she's, she's inspired by those questions. Yeah, I would say she's inspired by the questions rather than the person. Um, and then there are a bunch of other people who have more superficial uh, resemblances to, to people in Chinese history. So, um, spoiler alert for the Dragon Republic and the Brand God, uh, Naja and his father, the Dragon Warlord, are are mapped off of um, Chiang Kai-shek and his son, and they most notably write like their relationship to to the West and to um, their role in ultimately creating a free and democratic Taiwan. Um, and oh, so one parallel that people don't pick up on a lot is Kitai is supposed to be Zhou Enlai. And again, it's more of an issue of being inspired by the questions by the person necessarily. Um, but a lot of people say that Zhou Enlai was just Mao's toady. He was extremely loyal to the point of accepting extreme amounts of humiliation and personal debasement. Like Zhou decided early on that his, his strategy was just going to be to do whatever Mao wanted to do. And uh, and yet he's been remembered much more kindly by history than Mao. He was seen as the rational, kinder, uh, saner one. And the, the big question surrounding Zhou is, was he just Mao's willing executioner or did he manage to rein in some of Mao's worst excesses? So I tried to explore the Zhou-Mao dynamic through the relationship between Rin and Kitai. Um, and then th this last one is big spoilers for The Burning God. Uh, but the trajectory of Venka's story um, greatly follows uh, the, the tragic end of um, Lin Biao. But I won't say too much more about that because I want to keep this relatively spoiler-free. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's fascinating how you're saying that a lot of these characters are inspired more by the questions that the real historical figures raise rather than the historical figure like one-to-one themselves. Uh, and especially what you're saying with Ren. So how do you balance, say getting readers to sympathize with a totalian character who's like the main character in your trilogy while also portraying them in a way that invites the reader to think critically about their actions? Well, so the important thing is that at no point is Rin making decisions out of a genuinely evil motive. Um, and this is like classic, like how to write a, a tragedy 101, right? Like at every point, uh, she is making choices because she genuinely believes that's going to be the best uh, for the people that she cares about. And like, she doesn't see herself as a bad person. She doesn't think she's a sociopath. She doesn't think she's acting out of evil. She is always motivated by like a deep love and caring for the people around her. Um, you know, she loves her friends. She loves her people, her family, et cetera. Um, and she's trying to juggle those obligations in terrible circumstances. And 
I mean, the, the unique mix of influences that created her, most notably, I think her relationship to power and, and to powerful figures in her life who, who have used her and um, uh, manipulated her has given her a really warped perspective on, on ethics and, you know, what the right thing is, in fact. But um, I think the reason why she's still sympathetic and why you want to follow her story in the same way that you can't look away from a train crash is that she's not like her interiority is not immediately repulsive, right? Like the, her, her inner monologue is not, I hate everyone so much and I want to see them die. It's, it's more guided by pain and revenge and um, a, a very confused path forward. And I know at least what I like with either villains or very uh, troubled protagonists it's not like just like in the real world, right? You can't really say like, oh, this person is evil and that's why they do bad things, right? Because if nothing else, if you take that mentality out into the real world, like it's a very simplistic way of looking at things and you can't really apply that to many situations. Uh, so it's just something that I enjoy to see as a reader. Yeah, and obviously there are a lot of people who are just simply evil and that's the reason why they do bad things. Um, but I think the reason why it's more interesting and or I guess more important um, to explore people who aren't innately evil but are making very flawed decisions is because it reveals how how close actually the how how thin the line is between good and evil and how close each of us at any time are to that line. Like we'd like to think of ourselves as wholly good, uncomplicated people who would always do the right thing. But I think something that grimdark fiction reveals is that <laughs> the right thing is never quite that obvious and. Very often, people who do the worst thing think that they're doing the right thing. Right. So on that note, I actually am curious. Would you classify the Poppy War series as grimdark? I, there have been so many conversations now about what grimdark means that I don't even know what grimdark means. Um, I think for the purposes of like marketing and telling readers what they ought to expect, I think that it's grimdark is a useful label because it at least kind of mentally prepares you for all the violence and savagery and <laughs> mutilations and barbarism in the novel um so yeah i i so grimdark's interesting because so uh sorry for like going off on tangent but i am no, answering like another <laughs> question about genre and like literary categories um for clark's world interview and i started thinking about uh like how we categorize things in the first place and how those false distinctions don't really make sense and then i started thinking a a framework that would apply better to how we sort books and stories is Wittgenstein's um, concept of family resemblance, in which members of a group have overlapping characteristics which they share, but there's not necessarily one characteristic shared by all members of that group. Like, you know, how in a family, some people might have green eyes and some people might have black hair, but it's not like every single person in the family has green eyes and black hair, etc. But you can all, you can still vaguely categorize them as a family. Um, and, and I think that makes more sense uh, as a lens through which to see concepts like grimdark, like not all books have this, like you know, uh, not all grimdark novels have this, um, just bleak, pessimistic outlook on human life, and not all grimdark novels are incredibly violent, but a lot of them are. <laughs> um, and the, so the other re other reason why the family resemblance paradigm works for genres is because it extends the concept of genre to genealogy in which uh so like literally in families genealogy is just like who's whose dad who's the son of who but but in work in fiction we can 
then think about like what authors are inspired by what other authors and who's writing in response to what, who is writing a continuation of what. Um, and yeah, I think that also helps with understanding what we think of as grim dark and what is not. Um, but I would call the pocket board grim dark, although I, I still really don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you on ability to actually classify any subgenre in particular. Um, but I did notice on Twitter, your profile used to say Grimdark's Darkest Daughter, but it doesn't anymore. So I was wondering if you were sort of moving away from that Grimdark label. No, uh, I am totally happy with the Grimdark label. I think I just changed it because um, I'm getting deeper in my academic career and want a more professional Twitter handle. <laughs> a very valid reason. So before I go into my next question, I just want to say congratulations for winning the Astounding Award for Best New Writer at the Hugos this year, because that's such an amazing, incredible accomplishment, especially considering how talented the fellow finalists were. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I was really surprised, and I wasn't really expecting to win, so I wasn't paying attention to when the Hugos were or like what time they'd be announced. So I like didn't know that the awards ceremony was that night, so we went out for a walk, and then came back for a movie night and then at some point my phone was blowing up and I was like oh no <laughs> that <laughs> happened um but it was really cool and yeah I definitely agree that ballot was uncommonly strong um which is why it's doubly an honor so your acceptance speech was a really powerful moment and unfortunately what was kind of an otherwise frustrating night but you were talking about the racism that you and other authors of color have experienced both on the systemic and on an individual level uh so knowing what you know now what advice would you offer to aspiring authors of color who have just entered the industry? Oh man, I mean, I could there, I could talk about this for a really long time. Um, let me try to think of some short, pithy pieces of advice. <laughs> uh, I guess the first would be to to negotiate up, like very ferociously, um, in terms of advances, royalty rates, etc. Um, and this is related to a separate conversation that that the publishing industry had um, was not too long ago um, under the hashtag publishing paid me, which revealed a very stark disparity between the advances paid to, for example, like debut white writers versus debut um, black writers. And um, I mean, it was, it was really jaw dropping, like white writers whose, whose first books and like, we won't say any names and I'm only talking about abstract examples, but I saw a lot of people whose, whose first books, like, frankly, like did not do very well, did not sell that many copies and, and they were paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and versus right. Like black writers whose, whose books did extremely well. Um, N.K. Jemison's advances are, were, were startling to me. And I mean, she's also tweeted about why her advanced structure makes sense for her because she, you know, she gets way more royalties and it's uh, like, it's a more steady, um, like well-timed form of payment, but, but still, right? Like N.K. Jemison should not be making less than a hundred thousand per book in advances. So if you're a young BioPC writer going into the industry now, like go into those negotiations well-armed with the facts and figures from publishing paid me there are spreadsheets available online like people did a really good job of data collection and it's also up there and have those numbers and have your agent use those numbers in in conversations um because yeah like y'all just deserve to be paid way more than you are um the other thing i would say is that you have to be really in control of how you and your work are described um, from the start. Otherwise, the way that you're going to be 
marketed, the way that reviewers are going to talk about you, the way outlets are going to talk about you, are going to make assumptions about your work that aren't necessarily true. Um, like I, I have a lot of frustrations with the way that we we talk about and pitch books by authors of color, which usually boils down to to their identity and their uh, superficial cultural similarities to each other rather than the merits of the work itself. Um, so, for example, I, I'm actually really frustrated by the fact that people uh, compare the pop war to Fonda Lee's Jade City or either of our works to, to Ken Lee's Silk Punk trilogy. Um, and the reason why is because they're they're written really, really differently. Like the voices are incredibly different, like the, the types of stories that are being told. And I guess if your only criterion is uh, I want to read a book about Asians by an Asian writer, like then you might like all three of our works. But for example, if uh, so like Fonda and I write dialogue and, and fight scenes very, very differently. Uh, and the, the Jade City has more to do with the Godfather than it has to do with the Poppy War. And yet, like, because the way that marketing works, like all Asian novels are like categorized together to, to sit on the shelf of Oriental foods, et cetera, in the supermarket, whereas books by, by white writers um, are described on their actual story elements and merits. Um, they, yeah, like, it just seems like the only selling point for BIPOC writers is, is the fact that they're BIPOC and own, own voices, etc. Um, so if you don't want people to describe your books in very frustrating, reductive, essentialist ways, then you have to push that narrative from the start. From the start and you have to make sure that the rhetoric and wording that you choose makes its way into the copy uh, that is used um, from high up, you have to be in close contact with your publicist about how they're going to talk about the book, how, how outlets are going to review it and, and describe it, etc. Um, which is like a tough and I think intimidating process, especially when you're a young writer starting out. And I definitely like let a lot more things slide with the production of the Poppy Award than I should have. Um, but you, yeah, you just got to do it. Otherwise, you're up for years of frustration. Yeah, all very valuable advice. Thank you for sharing that. Well, on a slightly happier note, uh, looking forward at your next book, I know you're excited about uh, writing something that's a significant departure from the popular, like you said, your Oxford novel. Uh, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun writing it. Um, and so it's now it's in a genre that is less confusing to categorize, which is dark academia, um, which I've always loved. The Secret History is one of my favorite novels. I really enjoyed Lee Bardugo's Ninth House. Um, and, but like my frustration with a lot of dark academia is that a lot of it's written by white women. And that is apparent in, in the characters and the particular stories that are told in which like the, the scary things in these novels are not like the existence of the university itself or the racism, classism, sexism, etc. that already exists at the university, but, but rather constructs like uh, an external horror, um, right? To, to make the, the academy seem more fantastical and, and looming and foreboding than it really is. But there, I mean, if you just like think about the fact that it wasn't until like last year or two years ago that Oxford appointed a scholar to look into the ways in which um, slavery and the slave trade uh, were fundamental to the building of its colleges. Like there's already so much messed up shit going on in elite universities um, that would make for much better material for a dark academia novel. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm writing basically a response to the secret history, which features uh, protagonists who are 
um, people of color uh, in Oxford in the 1830s during a time in which obviously there were no students of color, uh, but it's alternate history, so I can do whatever I want. Um, and I mean, without giving too much about the plot away, it is also inspired by student revolutions across history, um, like things like the Tiananmen Square Massacre, things like the movement in Hong Kong over the past year, things like the White Rose Society, et cetera. Um, I've, I've always been really interested in the question of why student revolutions succeed, or rather why they fail but succeed anyways, because they almost always fail because the students don't have any power, right? They don't have political power. They only have cultural capital, but they don't have guns. Um, they can't win in any significant conflict, right? Like the, the June Rebellion that Victor Hugo writes about like was really doomed from the start because the students just don't control the, the means of revolution. Um, but they occupy such an outsized role in, in history and in popular perception of rebellion and I think there's a lot to untangle there with, with trips of martyrdom and sacrifice and, and the fact that students are innocents, um, but they're fired upon anyways, which means that their message echoes around the world. Um, so I'm working through a lot of thoughts on that um, through the Oxford novel, which is very complicated and difficult to write and uh, ambitious, more ambitious by a lot than the Pocket Word trilogy. Um, but that also makes it more fun because I think it's important to challenge yourself and, and to try writing. Like it, it would not feel satisfying or worth my time if what I worked on next was uh, just an easy epic fantasy novel in the vein of the Pocket War. Like it's time to move on to something harder. Right. Well, as if the Poppy War was all light and fluffy and easy in the first place. <laughs> Well, I think it's really basic in a lot of ways. And, and yeah, I'm trying to level up. Um, the other change or the other big change is that I'm finally deviating from the three-act structure, which I've been clinging to like a drowning man um, <laughs> to to order my stories. And I had like a, like a come to Jesus moment a couple weeks ago when I realized that the Oxford novel, like the reason why I felt like it was flagging was because I tried to shoehorn everything into the three act structure when actually a five act structure was exactly the, the basic pattern of the novel. And then once that clicked, like everything really fell into place, but I've never written a five act structure story. Um, so that's required a lot of planning and thinking and, and reading about craft. Um, so <laughs> it's harder on a basic numerical <laughs> level, but, but that's good. It's, it's a really exciting challenge. Yeah. Based on what you were saying with your recent chat with uh, V.E. Schwab talking about switching up something structurally, is that what you changed the three act to five act or was that something else? Um, so that is one huge change. Um, there are other changes with POV, with tense, with um, like chronology that I'm doing, but I don't want to go into those too much in detail uh, because it also still feels like a fragile embryo at this point. And if I over explain it, then it is exposed to the world and dies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, fair enough. We would not want that. So also uh, in an interview you recently did with Nerds of a Feather, you said that you're sort of getting somewhat tired of fantasy at this stage in your career. So can you talk about why that is and maybe where you'd like to focus moving forward? Yeah, I think it's just because I've been writing it so much. Um, that I am excited to try out different genres. Um, but I've also noticed a big shift in my reading patterns when 
So like from 2016 to 2018, I would say, I was reading a ton of fantasy and I really loved it, obviously, um, because it was also at a time when I was learning a lot about what fantasy as a genre is capable of, especially the modern era of fantasy, which features work by a lot more diverse writers. And I was just super excited about it. Um, but I think we always write what we enjoy reading the most. And I've been less and less excited by fantasy novels. And so like I used to read them for escapism and now like none of them holds my attention. And like a lot of that has to do with just t- general 2020 depression, like, you know, living in a pandemic, the election coming up um, a month from now, uh, the general state of the the country um you know racial tensions uh rampant anti-blackness and it feels weird and irresponsible to glimpse away from those issues and escape into another world and i know that not everybody agrees with me and there are lots of really really good arguments about the the power of fantasy and the necessity of stories um, and changing our minds, changing our worlds, making us feel seen, making us feel represented, giving us courage and strength, blah, 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 et cetera. Um, and, you know, a lot of those arguments are probably true. Uh, but it's really hard to feel the truth of those arguments right now. Um, I'm going to have a talk with Ken Liu in a couple of weeks where uh, I am hoping he tells me the answer to um losing faith in storytelling and and wondering what the point is because just as this year's progressed i like it was hard to work on the burning god when everything else was going on and i really started to wonder like what like what is the political purpose of my work like who does this really help right like people are dying and i'm working on a fantasy novel um about about things that don't even exist in our world uh like really like what is the point um so that's wrapped up in a larger pessimism about you know the the value of my work um which i'm sure i'll get over at some point but that's why i can't really read fantasy right now um i also remember seeing a, a couple of pretty good tweets by nk jemison a while ago where somebody asked her basically like why why did she shift from fantasy to writing about real world to new york in the city we became uh, why is she now writing about like real life white supremacy, like modern, like, you know, contemporary, like kind of white supremacy and anti-blackness that we read about in the news. And she said something about how like the fantasy as um, metaphor for real world discrimination and opp- oppression doesn't work anymore because, because like white supremacists read novels about oppression and discrimination and they don't see themselves as the bad guys. Uh, they see themselves as the good guys. Uh, they see themselves as the oppressed group. And it, it she makes a compelling argument that you really can't change people's minds about things unless you call things by their proper name, unless you write about them explicitly and directly without the reflective lens of fantasy. Um, so that's where I'm at now as a reader and a writer. I just don't really have the patience for fabulation and... Um, you know, the the refracting prism of fantasy. I find it a lot more valuable and necessary to write about things that actually happen to things in which there's no ambiguity about the parallels of what you're writing about. Um, I mean, I'm not convinced that my attitude is correct. Uh, and I know there are a lot of really good arguments for the value of fantasy. I just don't believe in them right now. Yeah, I think that's a, a very valid take after uh, the general 
everythingness of this year so far. Yeah, and I mean, like we're racing. So there are all these arguments about how we are raised on fiction that makes us better people, but it's hard to see the evidence of that. Um, especially like, like my generation was raised on like dystopian YA where it's all about, you know, kids taking a stand against like an authoritarian dictator. And we are literally spiraling into, uh, like a situation that like, I don't want to be alarmist, but if the Republicans steal the election, like, I don't know what that means for the fate of American democracy. Um, and if it's true that we were all raised on this like anti-authoritarian uh, fiction, then like, where is that reflected in, in our politics and in the decisions of our leaders? And I'm not sure that it is. Um, so I have a lot of skepticism about the value of story, um, but I'm like really hoping and praying to be proven incorrect because uh, I'd like to keep telling stories. I just want to know that they matter. Right. Well, hopefully, like you said, uh, if anyone can provide you some answers to that, Ken Liu seems like the person who can do it. It seems like he got over it. He wrote about it in a newsletter about um, having lost faith in the power of story and finding it again. Um, and I'm at the first stage and I just have to find it again. Well, on a somewhat lighter note, have there been any books you've been reading lately that you can recommend? Yeah. Um, so I picked up Yag Yassi's Transcendent Kingdom on the recommendation of a friend and absolutely loved it. And it's really like a slice of life. Well, not really a slice of life. It's it's not dark academia. It's a campus novel about a doctoral student in neuroscience at Stanford. But it's less about, you know, that, that student's research and more about uh, the ways in which her research and her family's history um, her family tragedies and grief, depression, addiction, et cetera, intersect with, with her attempt to do research that um, addresses it in, in some small and modest way. Um, I also just reread The Collective by Don Lee, which was a novel that had a big impact on me when I read it as an undergrad from an Asian American lit class. And upon a reread, it still holds up pretty well. It's, it's a really messy, difficult story um, that addresses a lot of issues around Asian American identity, Asian American sexual politics, like the, the politics of being a Asian artist in America and, and questions about like the obligations of, uh, that, that we might or might not have as Asian artists to ourselves and our community and, and the very thin line between right, like writing about ourselves and um, deliberately exoticizing ourselves. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the collective answers, or no, it does not answer them. It just continues to grapple with them, um, but grapples with questions that have beset me um, basically ever since I, I became a writer. Um, so I would highly recommend that. Um, in terms of science fiction and fantasy, Rebecca Roanhorse's Black Sun is coming out really soon. I read it early for a blurb, and I, I really loved it. I think she's just getting better and better. Oh, and V. Schraub's The Invisible Life of Abby LaRue is finally coming out in October. And I think it's hilarious. So I got to read it so long ago, but everyone's been like waiting so long in anticipation uh, for it. It's funny to me that it's still not out yet. Um, but yeah, like V. Schwab is similarly also only getting better and better with each book she writes. So um, I'd highly recommend that as well. Yeah, I am uh, very envious of all these books you get to read so early, but I am specifically looking forward to those titles as well. Oh, that's a big perk of being a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one way I always like to close out these interviews is just asking, what's one thing you're excited about right now? Um, oh, God. Uh, well, okay, so here's a very small, modest thing I'm excited about. Um, it's 
been hard to obviously see friends and feel like you have a social life in, in quarantine. Um, and we can do that even less safely in Florida because it's only getting worse and worse in Florida. Um, but uh, my friend and I, so she lives in Philly um, and so obviously very far away, but we have created a menu card for a hypothetical fancy restaurant and we're both cooking the same three course meal tonight. Uh, and we will have a double date over FaceTime while we eat our three course meal. And we're going to pretend that we are seeing each other at a very fancy restaurant. Um, and I've been looking forward to it for weeks. I think it's going to be really fun. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've been doing a lot of things to simulate actually going out. So when we decide to have date nights, we turn our living room into a restaurant in another country, um, complete with like the, the music and the decorations, et cetera. Um, so I guess like that's, that's one argument in favor of the power of imagination. But yeah, I'm really excited about that. I think it's going to make us really happy. That's really cool. And those are both fantastic ideas. I might have to steal that. It's super fun. We turned our dining room table into a coffee shop. We got a sign for it and we serve each other coffee there. And there are like board games and, and coffee shop ambiance music. Um, and it actually feels like sometimes that we manage to get out of the house and work at a coffee shop. Oh, that is so cool. It's a lot of fun. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. I had a really good time. You can find RF Kwong on Twitter and Instagram as Kwong RF or at our website, rfkwong.com. The Poppy War Trilogy is a fascinating look at history and the blurred lines between heroes and monsters. I found it one of the hottest fantasy series in recent years. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon, or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.